Welcome to Talking Tuesdays. I am your host, Fancy Quant, and today we have a good guest, a great guest, actually. Uh, welcome to the channel, Morgan Maxi. Thank you for having me, Mr. Bianco. All right, Morgan. So let's just dive on into of who you are. Like, what is your background? Just give us a little summary here of who you are. Well, uh, my name is Morgan Max. I'm from Spokane, Washington. Uh, I have a legal background. When I say that, I mean, I have a lot of family that's in uh, the legal arena or field. My father was an attorney. My grandfather was an attorney. He was you know, the first African-American attorney in Eastern Washington, which was a pretty big deal. And then my uncle is also um, in the legal field and my father and my uncle worked together. I joined the legal field. Originally, I didn't really have any intention of doing so. Um, I wanted to actually be an engineer. I went to University of Washington for undergraduate um, studies. I, I played basketball there my first year, and which kind of led to me not doing so well in calculus. Uh, <laughs> it ended up leading to me changing uh, my major. I majored in English, and then I really took one class that kind of shifted my focus. I think it was either my junior year, my last quarter, or the first quarter of my senior year, I took a class called Linguistics and the Law. And it kind of talked about how the English language can be interpreted in so many different ways, just by, you know, the difference of where you place a comma or, you know, a different um, adverb or, or, or uh, adjective into a sentence, which is kind of a sentence structure and how that plays into interpreting contracts, you know, drafting documents or just how it interpret or how, how it goes to interpreting kind of, you know, the way people are trying to say things. And so that class really piqued my interest. And that's kind of what actually led me to apply to law school and take the LSAT. Um, and so from there, I, I took my studies to Gonzaga. Uh, my dad also went to Gonzaga and so did my uncle. Uh, my grandfather did as well. And then my brother followed after me. But I, I really enjoyed my time there at Gonzaga. At first, it was a bit of a learning curve. Law schools, um, as most graduate schools, I would imagine, are a lot different, a lot more intense, a lot more rigid, and a lot more um, focused than undergraduate school is. So um, that was kind of an eye-opener the first, the first semester, I should say. And then moving on, I kind of adapted and learned. And you know, now I'm practicing. And, focus mainly in, in criminal defense and family law. I do a little bit of civil work and constitutional um, work fighting for people's constitutional rights when they've been violated. Um, that largely stems as kind of a breakoff point from doing criminal law where, you know, I have clients where their rights are violated, whether it's an illegal search, seizure, you know, their property is not returned after the fact. Um, so that that's kind of um, the large focus of my practice. Okay. Would you say then the basketball piece was a big turning point for you between engineering and law? And also, I think something else I, I think somewhat interesting, I've kind of always remembered, is your dad also had a contract to play professional football, didn't he? And then he ended up choosing to go into law. Yeah, he tried out for the Seahawks. Um, I don't know that he necessarily had a contract, but he ended up kind of blowing out his knee which led to him kind of focusing more on academics. Um, I know, you know, as athletes, it's always a goal or an aspiration to, you know, try and make it to the highest level possible. But ultimately, you know, there's only so much room and not everyone makes it that high. So you, that's kind of one thing that, you know, athletes aren't really taught. Um, well, I, I should say back then they weren't taught as much as they are now to kind of have a fallback plan or a plan B um, just because it's not realistic for every athlete that, you know, ever plays a sport to make it to the NBA or the NHL or the MLB or whatever sport it is. Um, so 
you know, he kind of always had that in the back of his mind. And I think I did too. I, for me, it was engineering, like I said, but um, yeah, I think that's kind of where it, it took a turn for me. I mean, I was a walk on, you know, basketball player for a D1 team and, you know, I never really saw the court much. And that's kind of when I realized, you know, I was good in high school, but, you know, not good enough, I guess, to play in the NBA. I did have a tryout later on after I graduated or my senior year at UW. I tried out for the Trailblazers, um, but ultimately didn't go anywhere. Um, so, yeah, so I, I think, you know, at some point I definitely knew basketball, you know, was going to turn into more of a hobby than it was a um, pursuit. It's always been a passion of mine. It's, you know, something I do still to stay in shape. But, um, yeah, I mean, I don't plan on taking it any further. But, you know, like, like back to your question, I guess I'm kind of just rambling. But back to what you had asked me before. Yeah, it, it really was kind of a breakoff point. I mean, you're playing with these athletes who you see, you know, as much better than, than I was, I guess. They have better athletic ability and – it became apparent that, you know, at least half the team was going to go to the next level. And, you know, I wasn't. So I, I had discussions with that with my coach. And, you know, he always told me he'd take me into his office and say, you know, a lot of these guys think they're going to make it. Basketball is their life. But you have the opportunity to do a lot of better things. I mean, I've looked at your grades. I see where you're going. So, I mean, I did have a lot of positive encouragement from, you know, the team and, and, our, and my coach and the other role models that were on the team. Um, so that was always helpful too, is that I never felt like I was kind of stuck. Like if I didn't have basketball or if I didn't, you know, mm -hmm. pursue engineering that I, I had nothing else to do, which I feel like is kind of a hindrance for a lot of people. You know, they go to undergrad or they go to university. They don't know what they necessarily want to do. They just go hoping they figure it out while they're in school. And, you know, I think that's kind of a bad way to approach it because if you leave with a four-year degree and you don't know what you want to do, then you're kind of too late. Yeah. I think it's a good decision though. I think one of the takeaways I talk a lot about on my channel is about how like you should have a goal and something to shoot for, but never be afraid to like deviate and adjust the plan as you go through time. Just as like you want to be an engineer when you start and it's like basketball is like a great option as well. And then as things kind of play out through time, you start realizing like you could still continue on your same path, but it might not necessarily turn out the way you want it to. But then also seeing those other opportunities available to you and taking advantage of it. Right. And I think that's kind of going back. I had a, a mentor of mine who coached me when I was in high school. I, I wasn't like a standout athlete in high school, but um, I did a lot of training my sophomore and junior. And, and I had a coach that was really helpful with me. And he would always kind of tell me, you know, aim small, miss small. So always have your target in mind. And if you're always chasing that, you know, even if you come up short, at least you're going to have, you know, a, ma a majority of what you try to accomplish in that goal. And you might miss it by, you know, a little bit of a mark. But if you aim too big then you're going to miss too big you have to have a very specific goal and so after kind of him drilling that into me I, th I think that was really a, a big I don't want to say turning point but a big takeaway that I always had is that I always remember like if I'm going to go after something I have to be very specific and pointed and, and directed instead of saying you know hey I want to make it to the NBA my goal you know for the week was to you know pass this test or you know get an A or get a B or accomplish X, Y, or Z in practice as opposed to you know some lofty goal with no you know directed action i guess right yeah that's a good good lesson so when you went to law school did you know exactly what you wanted to do for law like criminal law or civil law or corporate law or did you start that and then kind of learn as you went when you took classes i think a lot of it is learn as you go i mean i don't know about you you know when you went to michigan and all that but um 
for me, I went in kind of thinking one thing, like I really want to do a medical malpractice. You know, I want to do whatever pays the most, like everyone. Um, yeah. <laughs> but I, I think as you go through, you kind of change. Like I went from wanting to do medical malpractice. And I think part and parcel was because that's where I was working. I was working for a medical malpractice firm and I saw how well everyone did. But um, so that was part of it. But, you know, obviously at the end of the day, it's not all about where the money takes you. Um, so then I switched my focus to intellectual property. I took a class and I thought that was really interesting. I took property, intellectual property, but I didn't have, um, the background. It requires you to have some, um, to take two of five classes in either science or math. I would have had to go back to school to take either physics or chemistry or something like that. And ultimately I just didn't want to do that. So really, um, that was a requirement. Yeah. Mm-hmm. For intellectual property, it is. Real, uh huh. That seems odd. It seems like, I guess, I don't know. When I think about intellectual property, I think more along the lines of like music and like creativity. So I feel like yeah. science and math would be like somewhat disconnected from the expectation. Well, like, yeah. And if I would have continued engineering, I guess, I suppose, if I would have made it to where I would have taken, you know, some of the basic engineering classes, I would have been fine. But I think they do it because they want you to understand. You know how some things are, are made up either chemically or how you design a patent things like that so whether or not you're focusing on trademarks specifically they want you to be able to still do um, patents because you have to sit for the patent bar it's a whole separate deal okay well i guess i should say specifically if you want to do patents you have to take this specific class like i guess if you want to do trademarks specifically i don't know that you'd have to go back um to take that so I suppose they still could but you know then i started taking you so there's a required class you have to take. There's constitutional law one, constitutional law two. So constitutional law one is kind of like the separation of powers, governmental structure. It's basically a, a enormous expansion on the, you know, the things you learn in eighth grade. You know, we have executive, le legislative, and judicial, but, you know, that's as far as it really gets. It doesn't really go into much depth. So that's kind of con law one. And then con law two is applying the principles, you know, to everyday life, to you know, you look at Roe Ro v. Wade, you look at some of these major landmark cases, um, you know, the case that uh, the name has escaped me off the top of my head, but um, that allows for interracial marriage. Um, so there's a bunch of different different uh, applications. That one's more of an application class, which I found interesting. And then there's uh, criminal procedure, criminal criminal law, there's civil procedure, there's all these different things so that you understand how, how the law is kind of interacts with every day-to-day -day society. And mm -hmm. at first it's overwhelming, but once you kind of start thinking about it from a common sense perspective, like once you get a bit of a grasp under your belt and you start looking at it from a common sense perspective, like for civil procedure, for instance, there's a really hard subject called joinder where you have to figure out, you know, which people have to be in a specific suit or a case and if you think about it in common sense terms, it's like, could this case go forward without these people? Would it be fully resolved if you didn't have these people included? So at the time, it was like really complicated because you're trying to figure out all these like rules and sub rules and how they apply to one another. But if you think about it in common sense, it becomes a lot easier. At least I found for some subjects. Okay. Yeah, I remember in school, it's like you learned even like, you know, the, the Constitution, you have all the different amendments on there. Right. But I didn't really know until you dig deeper that like, it's not like, you know, the right to bear arms, that's not like an amendment. You have to look at the entire, there's all this writing behind it instead of, I guess the way they teach it in school is kind of like that simplified, here's the bare bones piece. But obviously in law, you'd have to know every single subsection inside of that to really understand what's going on. Yeah, and you go you go back and you really look at the history. So specifically just to go off your example, like the right to bear arms, initially, 
you go back to the founding fathers of drafters, the reason why we have the right to bear arms is to, you know, prevent from a tyrannical government or a dictatorship where you can have a militia kind of like they had back then to, you know, actually have a revolution so that, you know, the, the constituents of the government can rise up and overthrow it if it becomes, you know, too much of a monstrosity, you know, for lack of a better term. Um, so that's really what it's for. But, you know, nowadays people just think, you know, I have the right to bear arms just because. Which yeah, they do, but that's not really where it's derived from. It's yeah, was well, the original it's intent a, for it? Yeah, it's not a natural right that you're born with. Yeah. <laughs> so when you guys talked, did you take a class on laying out the structure of how the United States was formed, or is that part of the part of those sorts of classes? Like, what is a republic versus a democracy? How does the powers get distributed between the different branches? Um, I guess specifically in the U.S., we, we don't. Um, we look at it, you know, when you look at the governmental structure, but you don't necessarily look at republic versus democracy. I think that's more of, you know, your classic social studies or history class where you look at how America kind of took the best from, you know, the republic from Rome. And then also, you know, democracy, just general, how, you know, you want it to be a government for the people, by the people. Um, and I think, you know, we learned this before, but America kind of tried to, or the United States tried to kind of combine those two um, ideas. And I mean, it works for the most part. I think it's a good structure. The Republic is more of the structure of government. You have like the hierarchy, you have the fact that you have to, you know, pass, you know, two branches of the government, or you have to have a cohesive um, government and have everyone kind of working together. So it's not just a, you know, dictatorship where one person's making all the decisions. And then the democracy aspect is like the voting where we have, every, you know, for big elections, you have it where it comes from the people in theory. I mean, you have it where it kind of goes the popular vote and then the electoral college is supposed to be based on the popular vote. That's more of the democracy. Um, so. Right. And even Rome, when they, since I guess they were technically the first republic, they still had a similar structure where you had like elected officials through a democratic process that were elected into the different levels of government. Right, right. And I think one of the biggest takeaways, I guess one of the grinds with me is talking to people about republics and, and democracy has to do with what is the goal of the institution? I think the United States' big focus is how do you max, or at least the founding fathers, is how do you maximize the freedom of every individual? Where I think on a democracy, it's more or less how do you maximize the welfare of the entire country? Right, right. That's a good way to put it, yeah. Because the democracy is... Yeah, I mean, it, it's like you said, it's the welfare, but you want it to be, you want every person to have a voice at the same time. But you're right. I mean, the basic principle is is the general welfare. Right. And I think one of the problems we see nowadays with a lot of the, I don't want to label them, but <laughs> there's different groups of people these days that are pushing agendas. And it seems like they keep thinking like if they can get the popular vote, they should pass new laws. And I think that's one of the crucial components when you start actually looking at the history behind how the U.S. government is set up is trying to keep those checks and balances and trying to minimize the amount of restrictions on individuals, even if the entire populace as a whole agrees on one thing. So, for example, like hate speech is one of those really odd areas as well, right? It's it's legal. It's protected under the First Amendment. And there's other types of speech that are not protected, right? right. And yet... Like and yet that maximizes the freedom on the individual. But again, you still have to weigh those consequences of do you restrict the individual to protect the public or do you put more emphasis on the public and then don't protect the individual rights? Right. And I think the best way to think about it, especially, you know, when we're talking about freedom of speech is, 
you have the right to pretty much say whatever you want to do, but the consequences of whatever you say, you have to remember <laughs> that you have a consequence. People think about it as, you know, it's freedom of speech. Yeah, I mean, you can say whatever you call somebody, whatever you want to call them, but you have to think about the con every action has a consequence, whether it's positive, negative, or neutral. So, I mean, you walk down the street, there's no positive or negative, but there's a consequence. You've made it, you know, 20 feet. But, you know, you say something, you, you can expect a reaction based on what you're saying and the way you're saying it. So, I mean, there's going to be a consequence to everything. I mean, just for instance, just because it's relevant and something that just happened, you know, with the president, you know, he gets banned from Twitter or blocked from Twitter. He can say whatever he wants. He just might not be able to say it on Twitter because of the consequences of what he said before. You know, it's not, and I'm not saying that I'm taking a position one way or the other. I'm just saying, you know, he's, Twitter deemed it that he was, you know, inciting violence. So that's the consequence they, they blocked him. I mean, that's just how it goes. I, I, I'm not, again, I'm not saying I'm for or, or against. I'm just saying every action has a consequence. And so that's what a lot of people think is I can say whatever I want. I shouldn't have to pay the repercussions because of freedom of speech. Well, no, the freedom of speech is to say what you want. But, you know, whatever comes next, that's on you. Yeah. I think that even fundamentally goes down more so to that individual, I don't know, rights or perspectives here. So think about like an employer, right? You go to an mm -hmm. interview, you can technically say anything you wanted during the interview. It doesn't restrict you. But right. at the end of the day, right, individuals and corporations still have that individual right to say like, this person's a little crazy or they said something offensive and you can choose not to hire them based on that interview process. And I think Absolutely. that's- yeah, it comes down to, I think, a lot of that, I don't know, personal decision-making. I think we miss that a lot nowadays where people want, like, that government to fix everything kind of mentality. Like, hey, I don't agree with, like, whatever happened in the news or what, I don't know, like, the Twitter case is an example of that. And people want like, government to, like, march in and, like, fix all their problems. But I yeah. think that's kind of the piece of that people need to realize you need to, I don't know, it's hard to balance that. I think a lot of people in our United States and globally now miss that piece that being an individual should be that main focus. It should outweigh your your decision-making and you still have to behave in a specific way if you want specific outcomes. Yeah, you, people neglect or intentionally forget that they have to have some sort of personal agency. I mean, at the end of the day, no one else is gonna help you except for you. Yeah, So. exactly. I don't, I don't know. I mean, maybe so, that's uh, too, too cold of a way to say it, I guess, but you know what I mean? It's, it, it all comes down to, you know, personal responsibility, I guess. Yeah. And I think, so I, did you ever see the movie or read the book, The Hillbilly Elegy? That's been all controversial lately. Uh, no, but I've been meaning to watch it. Uh, my wife actually really wants to watch it. I just haven't really sat down and watched it. But I heard it's, it's really good. So the Netflix one is like super short and condensed. So I haven't read the full book one, but I've had discussions with people that have read the book and there's a lot more detail laid out in it. But I think one of the, the key takeaways from it is that, I don't know if it's a takeaway from the book, but what I draw from the book and the movies is that there's so many different people in the United States that you don't realize exist. And yet all those people are around you every day, but you don't fully recognize that they're there. Right. And so part of that talks about like all the social programs that are currently in place. As many of my listeners know, I'm not a big, uh, big supporter of social programs, but you see them somewhat as a crutch a lot of times in a handicap where it's like a lot of people end up in this cycle where it's like you've been on it for so long that you expect the government to give you these handouts and to provide you support and right. stability in some way, shape or form. And yet part of that is him trying to show with like his grandmother's generation. So in the whole hierarchy of it, his grandma and them were well off, but kind of in a manufacturing society 
And so they were kind of like middle class-ish, maybe lower middle class, and they did fairly well. And then his mom was born into a grouping where it's like she was so dependent on different types of social programs and then kind of that individuality, that self-responsibility wasn't there anymore. Right. And so then what ended up happening is then, um, so I don't ramble too much, but she ended up being basically a bad parent and it creates kind of like this abusive relationship with children. And then that typically results in more kids having worse relationships with their children, which typically results in drug usage. And you have kind of this section of society, I think that a lot of people forget about. And yet I think on going back to like this constitutional piece here and thinking about the legal pieces of it is it's really sad. And there's different things you can do to help improve these societies. But I think having government intervention a lot of times isn't necessarily the best answer for it. Uh, yeah, no, I think that's a actually an interesting take. I've never really thought about it like that. I, I mean, you, you think of social programs, you think they're there to help, but I guess, you know, I've never really thought about the dependence the dependency of it or the, or the nature where, you know, people come, you know, it's like a drug where people just, you know, they don't, once they use it too much, they don't know what else to do. Um, but yeah, I've never really thought about that, but that's a good point. Cause I personally, you know, I guess being from my position of the law, you know, I'm always in defense. So I, you know, these social programs that help, you know, criminals either get rehabilitated or individuals, you know, wean themselves off drugs. I think those are good social programs, but you're right. I mean, far often, you know, far too often, I should say, do we see where, you know, these people are, they don't know how to get out of the cycle, I guess is the best way to put it. So, you know, they, they go through, you know, they go through rehab and they come out and they're clean for three, four months and then they have a lapse of judgment. And then, you know, the cycle starts all over again. It's like a hamster on a wheel. Um, so I, I would agree. I, what do you think would be kind of a, a way to balance that where, you know, because I was thinking as you were saying that, you know, what if we had it to where we limited the duration or the number of times that you can apply for these types of benefits or programs? But I don't know if that's necessarily the answer because, you know, what if there's an individual that really needs it and has tried to make efforts? But, you know, what I guess what, what would be your thoughts on coming either to a middle ground or, or a different structure for, for programs like that? I mean, you can pick one program specific or, or in particular if you have an idea as, as it relates to that. But yeah. So I, I'm pretty cold because you can call me cold hearted. <laughs> I think we should get rid of the majority of all the programs from a government perspective, because I don't think it's the government's responsibility to essentially like fix people or provide that support. But at the same time, I think looking at the root cause of why are these people stuck in these cycles and how did you even get there to start with? And I think the biggest issue we're seeing is kind of a deterioration of, I would call them American values but you could relabel them even more in a religious perspective of Judeo-Christian values. But I think these are some of the fundamental components that make up even like the constitution, the laws, even when we formed the United States government, a lot of people don't realize, right? We had all these different colonies that were all different religions and a lot of people hated each other and didn't go along. But I think we kind of weaved together that fabric of what stood as an American. And now I think we're starting to see, so there's a research paper by University of Michigan and some authors and they talk about, for example, wealth, because wealth is one of those things that impacts how successful you are, how well you do. And they talk about it's misleading because you see wealth will disappear. I think it's 70% of people that have a big inheritance end up wasting it by the second generation. And 90% of it is wasted by the third generation. But they said what the real advantage of that, which people don't realize is it's not the money that makes their kids and their grandkids successful. It's actually the fact that they have a good education because their parents are wealthy. They can provide that good education the opportunities yeah i think beyond that there's the expectation right like your parents expect you to go to college 
where it's like we, we both have friends that we know their parents don't expect them to go to college. And so it's a little bit more of a struggle life-wise. Right. And then the other, the other piece was marriage. So a lot of those families also expect their children to get married. And then the third component was, I think what the third one was, marriage, education, and, oh, and buying your, buying your first house. And all those three things, if you look at them, so getting a house, for example, is great because if you get a house, right, and you get rid of that mortgage payment and you get rid of that rental payment, it kind of bases you in one stable location. And I think what ties all these together is that you have nice stability. So you look at like middle class, upper class people in America and you say, oh, it's not fair, they're successful. But I think it's important to realize that rotates a lot of times. So even though somebody that has some, you know, rich millionaire dad, they might blow all the money and then their kids will be stranded as well. But I think if you can embrace that stability inside of society, I think it's kind of falling away now with all the political discord and the disbelief between people and the arguing and the fighting. And then people are upset. They want special treatment because they come from some minority group of some sorts. I think if you can help embrace that and they can, they look at it across the board. If you look at, for example, like single mothers, which is really unfortunate, but it's one of those pieces where if you have two parents in the home, statistically, you can look at the children who do far better. And it's not to say that if you have like a single mom, like you're not going to do great, but I think it, you kind of miss that additional support as a child. You don't see the stability around you. And right. I think if we had more of kind of that stability in society, you get more of it across the board that less and less people would hopefully be in these, they wouldn't be in these, you know, terrible situations where it's like you grew up on the streets, you grew up really poor. You might not have an opportunity for education, like your parents or your extended family might be in drugs. And so for you, you kind of naturally kind of fall into that path. And I think having those programs, so again, going back to the program thing, I think they're necessary, but I think they should come more from like a private sector or even like a religious perspective. So I know many religions, if you have like drug abuse, alcohol abuse, they provide groups and resources to help kind of get you back on track or help get you into like rehab. So I think you still need those programs, but instead of having it supported by government is trying to have it supported by private sectors, religions, other organizations. But coming back to that, how do we kind of, I think the big goal should be instead of government figuring out how to solve your problems, as a society, we should figure out how do we get more stability inside of culture? Right. Well, I guess and to kind of go off that point, maybe to play devil's advocate a little bit, is that, you know, if we were to privatize these things, do you think that companies or corporations actually contribute to these things? I mean, that's, that's my issue, I guess, where I think the problem underlies. And I think that's kind of why the government feels that they have to step in. I could be wrong, but that's just kind of my take on it is, you know, corporations, their goal is to make as much money as possible, not to really, you know, benefit society in, you know, a utilitarian type way. Um, so I, I don't know. I mean, I know some companies do that just because, you know, their CEO or their founder, whoever, you know, believes in that type of thing, but not every company would do that. And I think that's where the, the problem lies is that, you know, with, you know, I guess you, they always talk, you know, you always hear the 1% owns 99% of the wealth or whatever. Um, but I think that's largely the issue is that if this funding doesn't come from the government, where is it going to come from? Yeah. I mean, I think if you set up a nonprofit, you should be able to fund it. Right, right. In theory. Yeah. Again, I mean, yeah. In practice, it might not necessarily pull out to be the same. Yeah, but, just because I know here there's a couple, I mean, I won't use names, just, but I know there's a couple organizations that are kind of like that where, you know, they have really good intentions in mind, but the way that it's kind of come out has not been the best. And so they've lost a lot of their funding. Um, and I think it's just partly in, 
probably due to mismanagement, of, you know, of activities, maybe funds, but yeah. And again, that, that falls back on those who are, you know, doing the structuring and who are actually managing this thing. So I guess back to your point, you know, that's on them. Yeah. I mean, it's a tough situation because it goes back to kind of individual versus group mentality, which is, I would love to say, you know, more realistically, it's up to you. So you choose to do drugs. It's kind of your own fault. But then at that same piece, right, it's, you need some sort of structuring and support safety net to catch people that could potentially get turned around. And then also from a judicial perspective, right? If you could reform them, it's a far better outcome and far cheaper than to have them stuck kind of in that trap of going back through the legal system over and over again. Right. Well, and I, I guess I have a good example of that. And that's good to get a good transition just because the other day I had a sentencing where I had, you know, a guy, and I, again, I won't use his name, but he, you know, he's a fairly young, I shouldn't call him a kid. He's 24, but um, he's a kid. He, <laughs> I'm only 29. So, but I mean, he, uh, he got himself in a little bit of trouble. You know, he got charged with, you know, possession of uh, a controlled substance with intent to deliver. And he got charged with two counts of unlawful possession of a firearm. So, I mean, I'm helping him out doing everything I can. I got him um, to apply for, at least I got the court to allow him to uh, apply for what's called the dose of drug offender sensing alternative. So instead of focusing on, you know, retribution you know getting his punishment and doing doing the time for what the standard range sentence is for that crime it's an alternative to where you know you go well you can do a residential option if you qualify which is where you stay in you get inpatient treatment and then you come out if you're doing everything you're supposed to do then it works out and you know you just get re-entered into society he ultimately didn't qualify due to a lack of stable housing but if you go to so then i, I asked the court to adopt a second alternative called prison-based also, which is the same thing, but you get the treatment through the prison. You do 12 months in, 12 months out. That way you get kind of the rehabilitative and the retribution at the same time. And then once you get out, you focus on the real rehabilitative portion. And so his standard range sentence was, um, the midpoint was 19 and a half months. So it was 17 to 22 months. So I could have just said, look, you know, let's just give him the low end, which is 13 or sorry, 17. You get a third off for what's called good time. As long as you don't, you know, screw up while you're in prison, you don't get in any fights or whatever, you get a third off your sentence. So he would have been looking at about 13 months. But, you know, he's so young to where I told him, I said, look, it's not about the time. You know, I'm, you take this this prison-based, you know, drug, drug offender sensing alternative option. You do one month less in prison. Yes, you have the extra, you know, six months that you wouldn't have if you did the other option. Um, you know, kind of looking over your shoulder uh, in a way of, you know, probation, I guess what you want to call it. It's community custody, but it's really just probation. Mm -hmm. uh, it's by DOC as opposed to the state agency. So um, I, I told him, you know, I think this is better for you to choose this one. Yes, it's a little bit longer um, in the long, in the you know grand scheme of things. It's shorter prison sentence by a month or two. But you look at the long scheme of things, it's going to be a little bit more, you know, looking over your shoulder. It's going to be more to worry about. But I think it's going to be the better option for you because you do have this problem, whether or not you choose to admit it. I think it's going to be the best for you. So he ultimately agreed. But I think, you know, that's kind of where you look at rehabilitative versus do I just want to get the time done over with, you know, at least from my perspective. I, I, I always try to help my clients out in that way, even if they can't make the best decision for themselves. I want him to get help because he's so young. You know, when he gets out, he's going to be 25. Um, he just had a child, so I don't want him to basically fall into that trap of doing it all over again. So that goes back to kind of what you were talking about, you know, should the government provide these types of programs? I think, especially in, in the criminal defense field, I think it's necessary. Um, 
you know, because you have these offenders who go back. It's like you said, they get into this, you know, this this way of life where they don't really know how to get out. You know, you know, they don't know how else to make money because they don't have anything to put on the resume. So they turn mm-hmm. to, you know, some type of street drug or some type of, you know, street hustle, I'll call it. And you know, they try and make their own way out. And sometimes it translates into, hey, you know, they learn how to be a businessman and then they go legit and they do something else. But that's, you know, 1%, 2% of cases. Um, yeah. I, so I mean, it's not, I, it's not everybody. Yeah. And I think it's a really bad, I don't know how to resolve this, but it's a really bad mark on your resume because you have to de- disclose that. And yet when we ran a business, when I worked at a company, we hired actually two convicts. And the one guy was mediocre, like average employee, nothing wrong with him. The other guy was amazing. Right. Like he, he outworked everybody and he was always so happy and excited and motivated. Like you would never know or expect that he was a convict and his crimes weren't necessarily like deal breakers. It wasn't like he had like, you know, serial killer suit or anything on his record. And so I always think about like, how do you go about setting some sort of disclosure? Cause is it really fair to have to disclose that you have a felony on your record, for example, and that you did prison time or should it be based more on the sorts of cases because then it comes back to that kind of freedom aspect of doesn't it violate your freedom somewhat? I mean, I, I get you broke the law, you lose some of your fundamental rights. But at the same time, it's like, I think, as we're kind of pointing out, you're kind of blackballing people that have a minor offense. And perhaps right. changing kind of that ruling would help a little bit. I would agree with you there. I, I certainly do. And that's something I actually feel very strongly about, especially, I think you, it should be based on the length of time that you've been crime free. So like, if it's been five years, you know, then you have to disclose anything that's like, let's say a class B or a class A felony. But if it's been, you know, 10 years or 15 years, then there really shouldn't be any requirement to disclose because it's been so long ago, you know what I mean? That generally speaking, you've probably overcome that tendency or that, that nature. It might've been a one-time thing, but I, I would agree with you. I think it's stupid to have someone, you know, who, who was 17 and they committed a felony because they were doing something stupid with their friends and they broke into someone's house thinking it was a funny joke or, you know, they get caught by the police, they do their time in jail and then, you know, it haunts them for 20 years. You know, they go to apply to a job at some firm when they're 35 and they do a background check and they see that yeah. and they're like, oh, well, you know, we're going to pick the guy without a history. Yeah. yeah Nine times out of 10. Yeah. Because, right. I, I mean, I've, ha- I've had clients approach me with that issue and the, and the problem specifically with juvenile things is that they seal everything so that there's really no way to, to get it off because you have to unseal it and then go through this long process. And ultimately it's not worth it because if you unseal it, then it becomes public record and you don't want everyone to be able to know about it. So it's kind of like a catch 22, you know what I mean? You're damned if you do, damned if you don't. Yeah, it's either public or it's your employer knows. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you screwed both anyway. ways. Yeah. <laughs> um, so what other issues do you see with the legal system in general? Like how, how would you fix things or change things differently? I guess my biggest complaint from a criminal defense standpoint i mean it applies to i would say probably every area of the law just specific criminal defense you know is the capitalistic nature of it i don't know that you can really the problem is i don't know how to get away from it that's so i mean i I hate to point out a problem without a solution but yeah so let me give an example to lay this out so some people know so i was involved in some way shape or form in a uh, a criminal trial And it, it to be up, clear, he was not the defendant, but yeah, <laughs> but it was in this situation where we had a small government agency suing an individual 
And so the essentially the government has endless funds. So the DA can go after you forever because they have government supply. They can just tax their people and, and print just print more money. Yeah, just print, yeah, just print more money. We'll just keep screwing this guy over here. And then the issue was you don't get a fair trial. And a lot of times in these small cities, these small places, or even if you're from a different state, for example, let's say, you, I don't know, some crime you get tried for in multiple states away and you go to trial, the question and concerns is how do you get a fair trial there? And in this situation, we had an instance where it was like the lawyers were refu- refused to take that case because everybody knew like the city is going to just rule for the DA regardless of the evidence or the case. And so it ends up in that that position you're talking about, which is the pay to play kind of atmosphere where it's like, we could keep paying more and more money. Or perhaps if we were super wealthy and like, we knew some, I don't know, some billionaire and he could come in and like get like the world's greatest lawyer and then have them practice in a different state, that might help you. But then to your point is, how is that fair for other people to end up on this downside where it's like, you don't have enough money to continually pay for a lawyer. And these DAs are tricky. They'll keep dragging these cases out, knowing that they're essentially nickeling and diming you till you run out of capital. I think this is the same for corporations. Some big tech companies do this to little tech companies. Right. So they can swallow them up. Yeah. You steal their technology and then they sue you and then you just drag it out till they run out of capital and then you just move on. Yeah. Or you end up acquiring them as a settlement. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, that is, you know, a problem because, I mean, for instance, you have, let's just say, you know, someone gets charged with, I don't know, whatever the worst crime you think of. I mean, let's just say murder, for example, you know, and they're happen to be innocent, but they don't have the funds to pay for it. And ultimately they get convicted. Whereas you have, you know, someone who's a multimillionaire, they can throw all these, all this money at it. They can throw, you know, hire all these investigators, hire multiple attorneys, you know, they're, basically attacking the government from all different angles as best they can. And they get, you know, a resolution or a settlement. And even though they might be guilty for manslaughter, you know, which is the better, better outcome, I guess. You know, I always say, you know, it's better to have one, well, I guess it's just a personal opinion of mine, but I, I always believe it's better to send, sorry, better to let an, a guilty man walk in to put an innocent man in jail. And the reason is because once you're deprived of that Liberty, your right to freedom, it's I mean, its not impossible to get back, but it's pretty close. I mean, once you have that mark on your record, it's the government is not going to overturn it unless it's like clear as day that you did not do this crime. And even then they'll fight it just because they don't want to be wrong. Right. And so, but isn't that though, I, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong here, but going off of your point, isn't that how the judicial system was originally set up that it was supposed to be favored towards those being accused? For example, yeah, and I think now we're, I don't know, it's very skewed, I think, because everyone's like out to get somebody. And I think the term of justice no longer applies, because I think a lot of people think justice means revenge. So like, oh, I don't know, let's say an accident happened and somebody hit me in a car and I broke my leg. So I sue them to get medical money to repair the leg, right? But I think nowadays people people want like that $10 million. Like, I want to sue you to the moon because like you, I don't know, you inconvenienced me. Oh, no doubt. No doubt. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, the leg example that that you know would be what most people think. Well, I shouldn't say most people. But that would be what the principle of justice would stand for. Um, but yeah, like you said, it's become more of I want my pound of flesh, um, and that's justice to me subjectively than objectively. You know, justice is hey, we want to make this person whole. If they had to pay, you know, for these medical expenses, then that's what we want to give them. You know, plus, you know, whatever their pain and suffering was. I mean, that's supposed to be how it works out, but you're right. I mean, there's times where 
you know, someone will do something that someone doesn't like. And so they'll falsely accuse them of a crime to get back at them. And, you know, I don't know how this kind of happened, but I, I definitely agree with you is that before, you know, early on when this was originally set up, it was innocent until proven guilty. And now it seems the opposite where you're guilty until you prove that you're innocent. I mean, I know that that's the standard hasn't changed, but the public perception, um, the judicial perception, at least that I've seen, has certainly been skewed. And I don't know if it's because now we live in a society where you have cameras everywhere, where you have people with smartphones who are always taking pictures, taking videos of everything. But I mean, even then you can alter, edit and conceal the, the truth and, and crop or edit the video to make it fit, you know, your own agenda or your own narrative. Yeah. And I think that's the problem is like a lot of people, at least I have had it happen multiple times where I have, you know, a client that comes to me and hey, I need help. I didn't do this. And, you know, I, I have no choice but to believe their story when they come to me. And then you look at the pictures and they, you see what the prosecutor has, you see, oh, they have this picture of this video. And then you get it from, you know, my client. And they're like, well, that's not the whole picture. It's not the whole video. And then you get the other half or, you know, the pictures that were before that come after. And you see that it's not really the full story. And then even when you present that to the government, sometimes they just don't want to believe it. You know, why would this person come to me or come to us and want to prosecute this person if they didn't really have a problem? Well, because it's human yeah. nature to some degree to want to get that form of retribution whether it's you know exaggerated in some way you know what i mean whether it's not fitting to what was actually done or, or what the subjective opinion is i mean it's hard to basically take how you feel and then tell someone else and have them feel the same way you know what i mean yeah so like if someone feels they were wronged, they're going to make it, you know, to the 10th degree versus when they tell the other person, they're going to get the exaggerated story because that's how you feel as opposed to, you know, what may have happened was, hey, you know, he accidentally pushed me, but how you feel it is, hey, he pushed me on purpose and I fell and, you know, I could have got seriously hurt. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it just, it just goes through all these different could, mediums or wavelengths where then it gets turned into something that's not a lot of times. So correct me if I'm wrong here, but doesn't it work the way if you go to trial that your peers on the trial, they determine if you're guilty or not, but doesn't it come down to the judge on the actual final sentencing piece of it? Like how many years, for example? Yeah. So you look at the jury, you know, usually you get 12 jurors and you have, you know, in some cases, you know, one to three alternates in case someone gets sick or can't do it or they get challenged because they're, they're shown to be impartial. Um, yeah, so they make the ultimate decision as to guilty or innocent based on the evidence presented and the testimony presented. And then, you know, let's just say someone's found guilty, then you move to sentencing and that's totally up to the judge. Then you make your pitch why, you know, the client should get the low end or the high end. And then the judge ultimately determines, because at least in Washington, I, I won't speak for every state because I know this isn't true of every state, but we have, we've had the sentencing reform act. I know that was a federal thing. And so at least in Washington, we have a standard rate of sentence, like, for a, an unranked felony, your first one, you have what's, we have a point system. So the more felonies you commit, they, they the court kind of keeps track of it. Mm -hmm. And so they count against you. So like if you have an unranked felony, those standard range is typically zero to three months. But like if you have one point, it moves up to one to three. And then okay. it moves up again from two to five. And it continually moves up four. So the more points you have, the longer your sentence is going to be every time. And that's kind of the deterrent factor. But for some of these people, you know, they don't really have any other way out. So, I mean, I, I got a guy last year who's just a career criminal. He's got nine points, and he's not doing anything to make any better. I mean, he gets out of prison, he reoffends, goes to prison, he gets out, he reoffends. Yeah. You know, he's 
telling me this pitch. So I'm like, hey, man, you know, I believe you to a degree, but the video shows this, that, and the other. And he goes out and gets a new charge. And I'm like, okay, so I think this is where our relationship has to, you know, kind of end because you're not being truthful. It's hard to defend someone when they're lying to you. Right. I mean, it's not that it's not that I don't like him as a person, but I can't, you know, defend him as best as I can. If I'm not getting the full story. So, yeah, and I think people miss that too with the law. The law is more complicated than I think a lot of people think. And if you mm -hmm. know all of the truth up front, then you can better prepare that defense for them to get them the best outcome. Whereas if you yeah, just yeah. like pretend like, hey, dude, I'm completely innocent, and then like at the very end of it, you're like, oh, by the way, I did commit this and this. So now can you get me like a great deal? It's like. What's well, kind of too late at that point because we've wasted all this time and the case is closing. Yeah, my two biggest beats with client, I guess, or my two biggest issues would be when they either don't tell me the full story or they tell me something they shouldn't. Like, I don't want to know if you're guilty, but at the same time, I just, I want to know what I tell happened, you. you know what I mean? <laughs> so, so there's like a, a fine line. Like, I don't want you to come out, like if you're accused with, you know, possession of a stolen motor vehicle, I want you to tell me what happened, like how you came into possession of the vehicle, but I don't want you to come up to me and tell me, hey, I straight up stole it out of my neighbor's garage. Like, you know what I mean? But doesn't that help? But doesn't that help them on, on your side? Cause you know the truth up front. So you know that like, this is the actual story and they're agreeing with the story, but then you can better set up like, all right, you're gonna get charged regardless. So let's figure out how we can minimize that sentence. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's when it, it's, you know, obvious that someone's guilty, but I guess, if someone wants to go to trial and they're sitting here telling me, hey, you know, this deal is not good enough, oh, but I want I to go you. to trial, I, I guess I should have clarified. Yeah. You know, I'm talking about going to trial. So, like, if someone's telling me, hey, you know, I did this, this, and that, you know, and I'm like, okay, well, that makes you guilty. And then they're like, well, I want to go to trial. I'm like, well, why are we going to do this? We already know what's going to happen. Yeah. But a lot of times, like, hey, that deal is just not good enough for me. Let's go to trial and see if we can get I'm like, but we know what's going to happen. I don't want to leave it up to someone else when we know the result. Yeah. You know what I mean? And that's the hard part. And that kind of translates to family law a little bit too. I always tell people, look, we can go to trial. You can ask whatever you want from, you know, your, your family's estate or whatever. But I always tell people settle if you can, because you have the control. Yes. You might not get everything you're wanting. If you go to trial, I can guarantee you, you're probably going to be less happy. Yeah. Because the judge is going to do whatever they think is fair. And they're not going to take what you want. into consideration. Well, I mean, I shouldn't say they won't take what you want but they're not going to sit here and try and work out a deal that's amenable for both sides. It's going to be like, Hey, this is what I think is fair. And that's the end of it. Yeah. And I mean, I think from this trial case piece, you have two pieces of it. You have one, you have jurors that don't really understand how the law works. So you wrongfully convict someone that shouldn't have been convicted right back right. to that, trying to be more beyond the shadow of a doubt kind of mentality, which is how it's supposed to be set up. But then I think on the other piece, a solution I would like to see. So kind of coming from a different perspective is, I would like to see, I don't know if they exist or not. They should have lawyers, I think, that are essentially like judge and lawyer bounty hunters. Like making a profession off that malpractice, that mal, I don't know, misalignment where it's like, like, like for example, say you have like a bad, legal malpractice? Not necessarily legal malpractice, but I think like, for example, like you have, a, say you have a DA, right? And they prosecute all these people. And they have this massive record of essentially convicting all these people. I think it would be interesting to see someone who built a career out of going after them and saying, hey, like 70, 80% of these weren't even cases. You're essentially just making up lawsuits for the sake of making up lawsuits. And I think now right. it, it exists as an option to sue them, but I feel like there's too much insulation. There's too much, I don't know, 
I don't know how to say it in any other way, but it's kind of like inbreeding where it's like everybody's part of the legal system. So it's like you don't want to essentially attack. No, that's exactly the point. Yeah. And bank, finance and banking has that same problem because we have bankers who are trying to make money and make profits. And then it's like, OK, you need regulators, which we have. But who do you make the regulators? You got to have someone that understands the banking industry. So it's like you take people from the same group and make them regulators. And now it's like it's self-regulating. So it's not as effective as if you had somewhat a, I don't know like a career perspective on how you can attack that. Right. No, I think, and that's a lot of the problem that we have is that, you know, a lot of these agencies or professions are self-regulating and they tout it as, you know, isn't this such a cool thing or isn't this such a unique thing that we're self-regulating? But the problem is, you know, you get to know, you know, I guess from a, I don't know, I don't know I'm trying to think of the word to say, but from a, a practical standpoint, it doesn't work because, you know, you get these people where you, you know, John, the lawyer who's a prosecutor and you don't want to hurt his feelings you don't want to feel like you know he shouldn't trust you or that you don't trust him because you have this personal relationship with him but at the end of the day if you know he's not doing what he's supposed to be doing you know you have to go after him or her you know or whatever the issue is and so i think that's where the where it falls apart is that you have this kind of public fear of of judgment or you know that you're not doing the right thing or that you know you're going to ruin my livelihood because you know that's your how do I want to say that's your uh, own moral righteousness you know I mean that and I think that's what the problem is that instead of having we really should have people or you know maybe not government agencies but we should have you know these agencies that are set up to actually overlook not overlook oversee you know, these types of things. And, and that is really a problem is because you have, it's the same issue you have when it comes to the police. You know, I'm not going to get into all that. I know it's a really <laughs> topic. topic in America right now, <laughs> but it's just, a, it's an easy one because there's, and I shouldn't say easy one. There's an easy way to talk about it between us because you, they have what's called qualified immunity and the prosecutors have the same thing. They have prosecutorial immunity. And it's a lot of these things where because people are working for the government, the government wants to say, Hey, you know, we don't want to get you in trouble because you work for us. So that's that's the problem that we have with a lot of these self-regulating agencies is that the same reason why internal affairs doesn't get a lot done because you know no one wants to no one wants to regulate you know the guy they've known for 15 years and say hey man you know you screwed up you know you gotta get kicked off you know they say here's a slap on the wrist you can still have pay just come back and don't do it again yeah that's and it's the same problem it's just a different analogy but it's the same problem. Yeah. And I think that's part of the reason I have against government running a lot of different programs and institutions is a lot of time they have good intentions. Like I have the best intentions to regulate internal affairs and whatnot. But at the end of the day, it's like you have a bias. And so you're going to use that bias, whether you fully admit it or not. And so it's like government's oh, usually in, inefficiently ran because there's no incentive to do otherwise. And I think that's why if you had All some right, sort of... Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. If you had some sort of regulatory body, like for me, like I, I consider being a lawyer, if you could prosecute other lawyers, like that'd be like a fun job because you're not representing the people. It's like you're going after judges and lawyers who are malpracticing and you can look online at judges because I've seen pages on them, entire list of complaints from citizens where it's like you had a judge, he's had all these strikes against him. His colleagues came against him to file official complaints and suits. And then like the day before the suit goes through, magically all of his colleagues withdraw all their complaints and they just keep getting elected as a judge over and over again. And as a citizen, I think it's so hard to de determine that because when they run for office, what do you, what do you know? 
mean, there's a website that says, you know, Dimitri Bianco is running for judge of District 7. And then you look at it like, it says he supports the law, he likes the Constitution, and he's an American. So you're like, he sounds like a good guy. I'll vote for that one. But there's never anything in there in the detail of like, how many cases you've got. Like, I don't know. I feel like the judges should run against each other and make those cases. Like, this guy screwed up 30 cases. You shouldn't vote for him. You should vote for me because I have better record. But you never right. see that information when they even run for election. No, and I agree with you. I don't know why that's not shown. I mean, there's not really any rules prohibiting it. I mean, we have, you know, the JEC, which is a agent or a committee that regulates, you know, how elections are done. Um, you have, you know, judicial rating committees. Um, but there's not, there's all these committees around that kind of, they try to keep judges in check and say, hey, you know, they did a misstep here. But I mean, once they're elected, there's really nothing you can do. Yeah. Um, I mean, they run for election again. So I guess you can kind of raise awareness to try and prevent them from getting elected again. But it's hard because one, you have to compile the information and you have to get it out before the next election, you know, which is four years. But yeah. It's, it's difficult. I mean, it, even it's hard a, and there's not, there's not incentive because you're not getting, you're not getting paid to do it. Yeah. But even from a positive perspective, let's say like I'm the greatest judge ever and I want you to vote me in. Judges are dumber than dumb when it comes to marketing. Like what? Like I look at, I mean, the last Super. election here was recently, I looked at it and there's like all these candidates, like I'm Republican, I'm Democrat. And it's like, well, that's great, but that vote. doesn't, yeah, I don't want to vote for you based on your party. Where, like, where's your record? I want to see who you supported even here, though, I think there's one judge that had commercials, and that was it. It's like, right. you should market why you're such a good judge. Like, why would I elect you? Yeah, and there's like, uh, at least up here, I mean, there was one of our, oh, who was it? Uh, somebody, was, I think she was running for Congress or something. She ran an ad, and it's like she's sitting down with some you know, autistic child and trying to market that. It's like, oh, you know, she cares. But it's like, if anyone it's just so easy to see there's just a clear pitch just to appeal to someone's emotional plea that hey i have an autistic child so maybe i should vote for them but you're right i mean i think that just goes to legal profession in general is that there there are some rules about what we can market about things we can say but it's not it's not limiting to the point where you can't do anything like that or you can't say hey you know i because of this big case you know i got this attention and you know i felt like i made the right decision or i did x y or z it just has to be truthful. So a lot of people just put out these general deals or general ads just to say whatever they feel is a good general, hey, I can get as most as most uh, as many votes as possible if I just say something general and blanket that just covers, you know, everyone's general idea of what a judge should be. And that's all they do. Yeah. You know, vote for me because I know this this politician and you probably like them. So yeah, it's all about association. Yeah, we're all on the same team. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, right, that's why so I think the two-party system is kind of, and I know that's not really what we're, one of the topics we're going to cover, but that's, that's kind of why I think the problem is with the two-party system. But now it's just become so divided where I'm Republican, I'm going to vote Republican, I'm Democrat, I'm going to vote Democrat, and there's nothing you can tell me otherwise. Just dumb. It's not how it should be. Yeah. Let's, let's wrap this podcast up with that as a discussion here real quick. So I think it's interesting now you start looking at the Democrats, for example, because you see more of a fracture now. And so one of the things that we were gonna talk about was uh, the Federalist Paper Number 10 by James Madison, which is how basically one of the papers written pushing for the US Constitution and why we should have it. Right. And I think one of the important parts in that is talking about 
the goal of government is actually to protect wealth inequality. Just kind of shocking for a lot of people because the fact that you, you need, you, because you actually need diversity. And right. I think, I think those are contrasting views of, do you want equality or do you want diversity and how do you reconcile the two? And I think some of the political parties now, which I hate to say it, but a lot of parties on both sides are like trying to essentially buy votes. Like, yeah, hey, they Dimitri, want to appeal. Yeah, they go, Dimitri, you're a banker. You know what? I'm going to give you know the banking industry this big kickback. You should vote for me. And it's like, oh, you're, Morgan, you're from a different group, like or like a legal association or whatever. Like, hey, we're going to give you a kickback or we're going to give you a bailout or we're going to give you something. Right, and like ex law firm won't have to pay you know this amount of taxes for this reason. Yeah, yeah, no, I, yeah. I totally. And even at the general public, I think it's disgusting because people are being bought out, which is supposed to be against the rules. But I think the average American doesn't realize, like, where does the money come from? Well, I think, you know, I don't mean to cut you off, but I think that's kind of the problem is that we had that Hobby Lobby case that basically said that corporations are recognized as individuals, which to some degree, I think they should be. But the result, again, it's, you know, in practice versus the idea is that now they can pretty much just go out, contribute all these gobs and gobs of money to candidates or to, you know, campaigns. And, you know, one, they can write it off. Two, they can basically tell that candidate what to promote or what agenda to run because it fits with, you know, otherwise they're going to say, hey, I'm not going to give you that money and you're not going to have a campaign to run, which, again, goes back to this pay-to-play system is that now that's kind of the no, I'm not advocating at all for a socialist society, but I'm just saying we need to limit some of these things, you know, because it's got out of control. Right. And I think you can limit individual and corporate contributions, perhaps yeah, figuring a way around it. But I think my biggest issue is comes down to government just makes up money or they just overtax specific groups and nobody cares. It's like, hey, I'm going to give you a kickback for voting for me. Or I'm going to give you a stimulus package, which we're doing right now. So it's like, so great. So where does that money come from? And they go, oh, we'll, we'll just print more money. It's free money. It's like, but it has to come from somewhere. And when you have money printing, right. which is supposed to help like lower income people, that it ends up creating, yeah, create, yeah, it creates inflation. And now all those poor people are now struggling to pay their bills even more because now the prices of everything are rising. Like housing yeah, prices. Like a, yeah. It's like a sleight of hand almost. It, it is. And it's sad thing is I tell people this and they go, oh, Dimitri, you're just for the rich. You're helping the rich. I'm thinking you realize a lot of these things help the rich more so. So like, let's inflate it and screw the poor people. Let's raise minimum wage so high that none of you can get jobs. But I mean, I'm making six figures, so I don't really care. It doesn't impact me. All it's doing is screwing over the guy on the bottom. And I think yeah. they miss they miss that a lot of times of stopping to think like, hey, where is that dollar going to come from? And also getting away from the mindset of let's tax the rich because that fixes all of our problems. But I see that a lot too. It's like, well, if we just tax the rich, it'll eventually fix everything. And I'm like, but the generational wealth gap switches. So it's like, so let's say you're super wealthy and they tax you to death and you have no money, which is fine. Even if you let that individual be, right, their kids or their grandkids aren't going to have any money either. Like it, right. it rotates through. So it's like, you shouldn't say, hey, this person's done really well at the US system. I think we should focus more on how do we make the rules more fair, which is different than trying to get a fair outcome. And going back to that Federalist paper of, right, if you want equality, we should focus on equality of the rules that everybody's playing. And much of the, the Constitution lays those things out where we've had unfair inequality in the past. 
And now we've passed amendments to make sure it's as fair as possible. We're trying to get to that state. But at the same time, I don't think you should penalize those that are actually playing the game well and winning. No, not at all. And I think it really comes down to it's not so much that they aren't required to pay taxes. It's the way that they allocate their money helps them get tax breaks. It's not, and that's what people don't really look at. Like, you know what I mean? If you make, let's just say $150,000 a year, you're going to get put in a higher tax bracket. So yes, your taxes are going to be higher than the person paying or making $50,000 a year. But on that same note, they're just smarter about it. So they're going to say, hey, look, yes, I made this much money, but I spent it on certain things, which allows me to write those expenses off. Therefore, I'm going to get taxed at the same rate as someone that makes $75,000. So it's not that they don't get taxed. They're just allocating their expenses in a different way. And I think that's the problem, not the problem, but it's the so way agree. people look at it. I'd agree with you on this. And I think there's a way around this, but people get super upset when I say it. One, we should shoot more towards usage taxes, not income tax. You should get rid of all these dumb loopholes because you're right. It makes it a joke because now it's like the more money I make, for example, now I start researching like which loopholes can you take and what exemptions can you get? Cause you don't want to pay 33% tax for somebody else's paying 25. Well, yeah. The perfect example is like you have a home office. I have a home office. I include that in my taxes. I write that off as a business expense. Everything that I put in here, everything that I spend money on the internet that I pay goes to this. I mean, we just yeah. move it to a different bucket. Exactly. But I think the way around this is moving towards a usage tax. So the more you use, the more you pay, which I mean, I think is the fairest way to do it. If you don't drive a car, why are you paying a gas tax? Makes no sense. Or why are right. you paying for the roads? Like you don't use them. And then the other piece is going to a flat tax. So China, for example, this is kind of odd, I'm referencing China, but I have colleagues in China that live there. They said, there is no IRS. That that's not a thing in China. Because what happens is, is you have a you have a paycheck. Say you make out of a thousand dollars. They say, okay, you owe me twenty five percent. They take their two hundred fifty dollars, and then you're just done. There's there's no loopholes. There's no going back to the process of saying like, how do we resettle up? Or you have four kids, and this person has two kids, which I think violates again that individuality. If you've chosen to have two kids or zero kids or four kids or whatever, so you should be responsible for paying for them. But I think if you had a flat, flat tax, it would just minimize all this nonsense the rich pays. It'd be a more equal tax. And then for usage taxes, for things like gasoline and food, like Texas doesn't even have a food tax, but we have one on like uh, how big your house is. So if you use a bigger house, you pay more tax in that house, which makes sense. If you have a smaller house, then you pay less. But I think that kind of gets around a lot of the issues with the loopholes that are there and exist. And then also trying to, try to level it somewhat. Yeah, I think that's actually a good you know, proposition or solution because it's like you said, I mean, you go through, people are allocating things a different way, but if you do it that way, then it's just right off the top. You don't get the chance to hide it, move it around or do whatever you're going to do with it. Um, and especially going to your point about people having children, I mean, I'm sure you know, but I mean, people will have children specifically just to get that tax break or to get the extra you know, $600 or $800 back on their tax return when in the long run they don't realize, well, hey, yeah, I'm going to get an extra two grand a year, but I'm also going to have to pay an extra fifteen to 50000 a year. I mean, yeah, the yeah, average, raise the cad. Yeah, it's like, I don't know. I, I don't know how true this is, but I saw it somewhere. It's like the average cost to raise a child from zero to 18 is like close to a million dollars. And I believe it, but yeah. people don't realize it. They're like, hey, I want the short term benefit instead of the long term cost. Yeah. Well, there's too many loopholes with kids, which I think is really unfortunate because imagine someone who's not really fit to be a parent or doesn't have the resources at that point in their life. And then you have these poor kids 
And again, they get they might be growing up in these poor situations where they don't have a lot of opportunities. But there's a lot of loopholes with having kids. So one's the tax break. Two is WIC. So you get all these food, I don't know, call them food stamps, but you get money for food. Yeah. yeah. A buddy of mine had had what he was doing this. They had kids. And he calls me and goes, hey, do you need any milk? I'm like, what do you mean do I need any milk? He goes, dude, I get like eight gallons of milk like a week or a month or something. He goes, we're not going to drink it, but I get it through WIC. So if you want it, I'll sell it to you. I'm like, well, A, that breaks the law. <laughs> But B, yeah. it's like, why are you giving these people so much stuff when it's like, I don't know, they shouldn't have had kids to start with. But then at the same time, like, you shouldn't be paying them, incentivizing them to have more and more kids. Yeah, right? and, they, and it should be limited to a reasonable amount of what it requires per child. I mean, obviously, eight gallons of milk is excessive. That's like as much but, as you drink. <laughs> I don't drink milk anymore. But yeah. No, I get it. And that's, I think that's my grind. A lot of people think like, if you don't want government programs, you don't want to help people. But I think if you put more emphasis on people trying to help themselves and that becomes a core American value again, you just have more people trying to do the best they can with what they have instead of trying to find all these loopholes. And it happens with the rich and the poor, right? Trying to find that tax loophole, trying to find that subsidy loophole, trying to find some way the government can support you. Yeah, everyone's just trying to game the system in different ways. That's all it comes down to. Yeah, let's simplify, right. let's mean, simplify it and get rid of it. Yeah. <laughs> So I, I totally agree with you. I mean, it would make life a lot easier because that's what the American dream is kind of built on. I mean, the, the principle was, hey, I, if I work hard enough, I can accomplish whatever it is I put my mind to. I mean, that's really what the American dream comes down to. I mean, some people think, think it's having, you know, the house with the white picket fence or whatever, but yeah. that's just an object. That's not an ideal. Um, so, yeah, coming back to that is that, you know, it's like, I saw this stat the other day. Again, I don't know how true it is. You see these things all over social media. And that's also kind of promising. How is you never know what's true and what's not because <laughs> it's just so readily available. You can just Google anything. Yeah. Um, but I saw this thing the other day that basically said, you know, it's like 90% of the 1% come from a place where they were part of the 99%, you know, where they were impoverished mm-hmm. or they've had to build themselves up and get to a place where they say, hey, I'm going to do the best I can for me. And, you know, it translates to, to wealth or success because they know that if they don't do it, that you know they're going to go back to sleep in some place they don't want to put their head out at night and you know that's their only way out whereas you know let's just say for people who've grown up you know the way that i've grown up is that you know you're used to having these things so you just say hey you know if i do this i can get by i can get this house i can you know do whatever but i don't i don't need you know to make it to the top to the pinnacle because i i can do just fine like you know the way i'm doing i'm not speaking for myself obviously but i'm just saying people in general that's just kind of you get different mindsets. Then also you, you get the mindset we were talking about earlier where it's how can I you know, get as much government help as I can to yeah. get out of the situation I'm in, which really just puts I, you on that hamster wheel. But I think that's where we're broken right now as, a, as America. I think is that there are people that don't want to put in the work, but they want, I think with social media is not helping, right? You see that guy that looks super wealthy. It seems like he has this really easy job, right? You know, being a doctor, being a lawyer, it's got to be all fun and games. And they're making millions of dollars, but they don't see a lot of times that struggle behind like going to school, those late, late, late nights and hours working late. You know, you have clients calling you at random times of the day, or, you know, you have surgeries at two in the morning or something. It was an accident. But I think on the same token, it's making this wealth gap seem even bigger than it really is because people are upset now saying it's not fair. This guy who's made it. Right. You know, I had a buddy of mine complaining about that's not fair. My friends, they're out doing X, Y and Z and he's a millionaire. and He's doing all this stuff. And I'm like, 
he's probably not doing as well as you think. But again, he wants to show that. But at the same time, I think now we have too many people in America pushing for these social programs and trying to find ways to level the playing field. And by leveling the playing field, it's more of how do we level the outcomes instead of how do we make the game fair? So I'm all for how do we make the game more fair so more people can participate. But I think we have this I don't know, skewed thing now with the media and all these social justice warriors running around trying to figure out like, how do we level everybody to be the same outcome? And I think yeah, we're- the cancel we, culture you're kind of talking about. Yeah, and it's like, we're losing that grip with like who we are as Americans. And there's too many people saying, oh, let's change it, let's do something different. And it's like, but that's why America has been so successful for so long. And of course it hasn't always been fair, but at the end of the day, if we can try to get that system balanced and that game balanced, that's what we should be focusing on. Instead of focusing on like, hey, this guy's successful, you know, he's had a good career. How do we like knock him down a peg to make it more level on the outcomes? Yeah, that's why, you know, a lot of people, I'm just using an example, but that's why a lot of people, you know, they say they don't like, you know, Gary Vee or some of these other people that are, you know, saying, hey, you know, it really doesn't matter what other people think of you. It's all that matters about what you do and what you think. But at the end of the day, I think he's right. You know, a lot of people that give that message are right because at the end of the day, all you can look back on and say, hey, do I regret doing what I did or do I not? Did I do everything and, you know, give it 110% of my effort or did I sit back and watch Netflix for eight hours and I have no one to blame but myself? You know what I mean? Yeah. So that's that's what it comes down to. Is a lot of people, and I guess it goes back to what we started this conversation with personal agency. You know, a lot of people, like you said, look on social media and they're like, hey, you know, you know, for example, you know, I'm in finance, but why does that guy get to make 500 million a year or 500,000 a year while I'm sitting here making, you know, 75 or 100,000, you know, how's that fair? Like, they're flaunting this lavish lifestyle that they're you know, living or you know, yeah. personifying or, you know, putting out there on social media, on Instagram or Facebook, whatever it is. I mean, you know, a lot of times people really aren't even making that type of money, but they want people to think they are. And yeah. so then it gets everyone else kind of jealous, which is, is probably one of the worst qualities we have as humans. Yeah. I think it's a hard pill to swallow a lot of times too, on like looking at yourself internally and really self-actualizing like, Hey, I am who I am because of the decisions I made. And so, uh, my cat at the door. <laughs> but I think it's a really hard pill to swallow. Like, it's, it's my fault. Like, if I wanted to be better, then I needed to do things differently. And I think it's really easy to kind of tear yourself apart, but people don't want to do it. I'm like, I'm not there because you're right. I did watch, you know, three hours of Netflix last night. And I did do all these poor things. But at the end of the day, I could have been better off but I just didn't make the best decisions to get there. And then for quantitative finance, I think it really ties in. So my industry is huge. I have so many people contacting me saying, hey, Dimitri, I wanna make a million dollars coming out of, of school. And I, I have to email them and go, well, that, that, that's not reality. And they go, no, no, I know a guy, and I, it's a so-and-so's brother, and he makes a million dollars working at, I don't know, they'll throw some big name out, like Citadel. And I'm like, you can go online and look at glassdoor.com and see what people are making. It's not even close to that. You have to multiply like 10 or 15 to get to that. Yeah. And you have to have experience. That's a lot of people. Yeah. You know, it, they're like, you don't, you don't, you're not just entitled to a certain specific sum of money just because you've gone to school. I mean, everyone's done it. And that's also the problem. I think is now college has become such a thing or university has become such a thing where it's like, you have to go to college where, you know, I know Elon Musk says this all the time. He's like, skills are more valuable than education. You know? so if you have a specific skill and it's desirable and people want it, that's important. You know, yeah. and I think that's get that gets left a lot by the wayside nowadays, where it's like, hey, if I go to college, I can get this degree and I can get this job at you know Amazon or Google or whatever. 
and I'll make my hundred grand and I'll be good. But you know, you're gonna be happy doing something you don't necessarily want to do just because you know it's gonna make you, you know, some money. Yeah, and I think that's a, a, a key point on multiple points here. One being I think a college degree a lot of times is a waste of time and money for a lot of people. Agree. And it sucks that we had to go to college to realize it, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think the other piece of it though, too, is that like kind of what you pointed out, right? Just because you get a job that you wanted and you're making money doesn't mean you're gonna be happy. And it's taken me a long time to realize like if you're content with what you have, you will be happy no matter where you are. So it doesn't matter if you're making a million dollars coming out of school or you're making, you know, I don't know, just enough to survive. You need the basic needs covered, obviously, but you have enough to pay all your bills. You can be happy on your own if you make that decision. I think, again, it comes back to that self individualistic aspect of like, you need to take responsibility for you. And if you, if you do, you can be happy just being who you are. But I see a lot of people in quantitative finance where it's like you go, you spend 70 to 120, $130, $140,000 for a master's degree and you already had to pay for the undergrad. And then at this point, you've wasted all this time and money. You get to the job. You're not making as much as you thought or you're not progressing as fast as you wanted to. And then you're like, I hate this job. I'm done with it. And then they quit and leave the industry. And it's like, you wasted all that time, all that money, all that frustration. And it's like, because people weren't being real with you up front. And also perhaps because you set your expectations too high and you didn't actually enjoy the work that you're going to be doing. Right. And that's, I don't even know who I learned this from or how I learned this. Cause that was kind of the one thing that I learned. It sounds kind of depressing, but you know, when you apply it to real life, it's, it's true that you can't really expect anything from anyone except for yourself. You know, it starts with you. And I think it just kind of goes to self-awareness is really the kind of the key word, I guess, for this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> but, but you know what I mean? It's like, if you expect the government to give you X or you expect your employer to do X, you expect so many holiday, you know, or vacation days, you're just, if it falls short of what you're expecting, you're never going to be happy. Right. And if you don't really care and you're just doing something because you love to do it. You're like, okay, cool. I can, yeah. yeah, I can improve for myself if I work harder, but yeah, I'm happy with this and I'll make it better. Yeah. All right. Any last words to wrap up this podcast? Um, I think we pretty much about covered it. I mean, we've covered a lot of topics. I, I think we've done a lot today. All right. Thank you for coming on, Morgan. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. Hope to be back again sometime.